1: Hey guys, Glenn here. Just letting you know, we recorded this episode on Thursday, the 19th of March. Uh, The release date is Tuesday, the 24th of March. And at the time of recording, the second round government stimulus package hadn't been released, but there's no material change to the content uh, because as you'll hear, Brian Parker did suggest that it was coming anyway, and you'll be into the main interview within the first three and a half minutes of this episode. So, stay well, we'll keep connected. The best place to be is in our Facebook group. And if you've got any questions, throw it up, search COVID-19, search coronavirus, because a lot of the time, I don't know the answer necessarily, but there'll be other people who have been in your situation and they can tell you what they've done at this time. Hello, sir. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I hope you're keeping clean. I hope you're not hugging your Mum and your dad and your grandparents. Are you hugging anyone at the moment, John? Always, I'm a hugger. Oh, sweet, yeah. love it. <laughs> you don't hug me though. No, I was going to. So my parents visited the other day.
0: Yeah, you're such a
1: and cold. Person. I just no, they're they're in their sixties. I didn't hug them, didn't kiss them. I'm like, mm. nah. You could have it, I could have it, and we don't know. Yeah, but we wanted to jump in and insert this little episode out of our usual schedule.
0: That's mm, a cracker too. With
1: um, Brian Parker, the chief economist at Sun Super, our show partner. So, thank you so much, Sun Super, for getting behind us. I wonder if we have to like do a shout out of the episode where we've got one <laughs> of their people on it. So, anyway, thank you so much, Sun Super. But we uh, we actually had planned to visit Sunsuper's office in Sydney and do three or four episodes with Brian. But with a few things going crazy at the moment, Mm. we decided just to do a remote dial-in and talk about a variety of different issues that our listeners have sent in on Instagram and stuff that we've seen in the Facebook group. We didn't say this one's from Becky underscore 72 or whatever. It was
0: just pure Um, liquid gold. Well, it it
1: was just, I just put questions together based on everything that everyone was talking about. So This is really cool. We're going to get Brian back on uh, soon. He's so full of knowledge and he's just really great to talk with. So
0: Yeah. And it's not every day you get to talk to a chief economist of a, yeah. a, a firm as large as that either, isn't it? Yeah, like, totally.
1: And the thing is, so I, John probably doesn't know this, but last year, the Association of Financial Advisors, our national conference, I was the chair of that conference. So helping organize the conference and... We always have an economist at the conference and I arranged for Brian Parker to be one of our economists um, talking at the event. So, for me, in my professional life, before our podcast, before Sunsuper, before Brian joining Sunsuper and all that, I'd worked with Brian and always rated him as like one of the top voices uh, in economics in Australia, just from my view. It's
0: a big feat. Did he rate you? No. no. <laughs> Glenn who?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, have a listen to this, guys. And we're putting lots of content out. We're doing more on YouTube now. Subscribe on YouTube. Uh, I'm doing more frequent content on My Millennial Money Express at the moment, just with all the crap that's going on at the moment.
0: Yeah, got more time. Got more time. Don't have
1: to travel. Don't have to travel. Yeah, <laughs> so there we go. Enjoy it, guys, and thanks for listening. Yep.
0: enjoy yeah.
2: In today's episode, we're really making the most out of our show partner, SunSuper. Glenn and John will be speaking to the SunSuper's chief economist, Brian Parker. And they'll be talking everything coronavirus, how it's affecting the share market, the economy, and they'll also be answering your questions. So grab some latex, grab a mask, and strap in.
1: Well, Brian Parker, thank you so much for joining John and myself today. Thank you, Brian. And
0: Great thanks for pleasure your to be here.
1: Thank My you pleasure it's a this is a once in a hundred year event, this meeting with us three isn't it? it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a once in a millennia event because it's never happened before so no. so there we go yeah now, I just want to um, formally thank you, Brian and the team at Sun super uh, for letting me milk all the resources available to us and our podcast listeners, <laughs> including yourself. so thank you oh, it's a
3: great It's a great pleasure
1: <laughs> now we've seen stock markets fall. Qantas and Virgin are basically pulling out of international flights at the moment. There's bloody job losses left, right and centre with this coronavirus thing. What do you think are the key differences with this pandemic as opposed to the global financial crisis?
3: Oh, that's a really, really good question. I mean, I mean, in terms of the market damage, obviously things are, you know, everybody's volatile and everybody's un- uncertain, but the underlying causes are just vastly different. I mean, we went into the financial crisis with really the world financial system really not in great shape, uh, where there were frankly too many, too many people taking way too many risks with way too much borrowed money, and at some point they were going to, they were going to come a cropper. But um, no one knew when that was going to happen, and when it did, it was obviously very severe. This time round, I mean, this is this is more left field. This is, you know, a, a virus outbreak which has economic implications and financial implications. In contrast, the last time, if I just if I, you just looked at the health of the world economy and the health of the financial system before the virus outbreak, you know, we actually came into this in not too bad a shape. I mean. The world had slowed down in the last two and a half years, but it was actually starting to pick up again. You had a trade deal being done uh, with China and the US. You had Brexit at least being temporarily resolved. The overall financial system wasn't in too bad a shape. And so this hit markets really very much from left field. It wasn't something that had been building up for... It's not like the financial crisis, which the pressures that led to that have been building up for years. This virus outbreak really sort of hit us kind of all of a sudden.
1: Just on that, Brian, John's going to ask a a question, but I want to jump in there. I mean, I guess in economist circles, it's so different, but for mum and dad at home on the street, this probably has more impact at the moment than the GFC because I went to buy a coffee just before we started recording and the cafe Mm. closed at 12 o'clock. So, I think in practical terms, we might feel this as a society more, like because – who cares that a bank in New York collapsed 10 years ago because because I can still go and buy my groceries, I can still go to the cafe, but now I actually care.
3: Look, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And the, ir- the irony is that, you know back in the GFC or before the GFC really hit the average person in the street, yeah, all this stuff was happening in New York and Europe and elsewhere, and, you know, banks were getting into trouble. But it took a while before people actually... Uh, I mean, obviously, investors... It, it hit investors early on, but in terms of impact on people's jobs and on people's livelihoods, it took time for, for it to hit, whereas this is far more immediate and far more savage, almost, in its impact. And the way I would Describe it is the virus itself, it has pretty severe impacts on travel. If you take Australia's case, it's having severe impacts initially on travel and tourism, and we sort of knew that, and that wasn't really surprising. Uh, Once we knew there was a virus outbreak in China and it was spreading around the region, you could kind of process that and say, well, that's clearly going to affect tourism and travel and related industries. But once people realise that, hang on a minute, the only way to really um, control the spread of this, and obviously different countries have had a different response, and some of some responses have worked better than others. But the fact is, in, when authorities, health authorities respond to this, it has really rapid economic impacts. And we've already seen some of that. Uh, And certainly when you look at the images from Italy and and, uh, increasingly parts of the US, but in France and in Spain, the impact on people's daily lives has been far more severe and far more um, rapid in its onset. And Really what it means, and this is one of the ironies, is that the more short-term disruption that you impose on people's economic lives in the short term, the more likely you are to save people's actual lives, if that makes sense. So um, you need to, you you almost need at this point uh, to impose enough economic pain in order to actually bring the outbreak to an end. Um, and that's that's very very hard for people to get their head around because I think there's 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 a bit of a hopeful view out there that somehow we can contain this with without doing much in the way of economic damage. And I'm not sure that's true. The one thing I would say, though, is that once we realise, look, we need to actually go through this in order to contain the outbreak, the sooner we realise that and the sooner we sort of do what needs to be done, the more likely we are to come out the other side sooner and come out and, and, and eventually over the coming weeks to months you know, you'll see better economic conditions.
0: Yeah, so that that was my observation from your statement earlier, Brian, is we've come into this uh, unprecedented times where it's affected directly people's health and people's lives and we're seeing it at the coalface. But because we've taken such a sharp turn, does that mean that once we're over this virus, that the economy being in a reasonable state before we came into this time that will come out of it quicker? Or or do you see that playing out uh, a bit longer than expected?
3: Oh, that's a good question. Look, I, I think the answer is yes, that I think we do come out of it quicker, but with one big caveat. In the meantime, you need governments to really step up Uh, and do what's required to support not just small business, for example, but really to support people's household income because there's going to be a whole bunch of people out there and we're already seeing signs of that, The people are going to be laid off, the people, um, the casual workers are just not going to get shifts and they may not get shifts for weeks to come. And so this is a time when if, if governments are going to help support the economy, you need to put money into people's pockets fast and you need to find a way of doing that um, really quite quickly. And there's no point in trying to, you don't get any marks for neatness here, if I can put it that way. You're going to get parts of it wrong. You're going to end up giving money to people that don't really need it. You get, back in the GFC when, when Rudd and Swan did their big splash uh, cash splash that came in for so much criticism and people said, oh, but you sent a cheque to someone and they died. Um, this is going to happen you are, if you're going to move fast and help solve the economic problem or help minimize the economic damage you need to run those risks mm. you need to just put the money out there and just don't let don't let perfect be the enemy of the good yeah and i think like there's an
1: old proverb don't muzzle an ox like let's just let them get a freaking big chisel and um and try and hammer this and i guess while it is a survival of the fittest uh, in terms of our physical health, if you're a small business and you've been running on the line, highly leveraged, if you're uh, running your own personal life, highly leveraged, these times, they're a survival of the fittest, of the financially fit as well, because this could be the ultimate reset for some small businesses if the government do not pull their finger out and at the time of recording and this podcast released, it may have already happened. So it's just moving so fast.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, you, and you do need to move quickly um, to, to minimise the economic damage because make no mistake, there will be that. And your point about um, financial risks and just how leveraged and how, let's call it how marginal perhaps some businesses out there may be. And that that's a really, really good point. And one of the, if there's what are the enduring um, outcomes of this crisis? I think there's a few enduring outcomes that we'll, we can talk about at more length on another day when, under better circumstances. Yeah, I would like but, to, yeah. You know, but do is this the kind of trigger that makes households and businesses more risk-aware and more cautious in so many other aspects of their financial life and their business life? And two, I think the other thing is, We've gone through, and, and it varies from country to country, but we've gone through many years where we've had this idea that um, let's get government um, off the back of the economy, let's try and free up markets, let's try and 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 let's just try and um, promote more efficient markets, and that's a better way to run the system. Now that may, that is mostly true, but um, you but you you want governments to be able to do stuff especially during a crisis and you and one of my frustrations as an economist is that you know for a large part of my career if I ever heard someone utter the words tax reform um, my first thought was well how much are they going to ask for how much money do they want the government to give them back in other words if people have associated uh, tax reform with tax cuts and I, I look back, remember a few years ago when, you know, we were trying to run a census and do it online and the whole system crashed. Mm. Um, do you remember that? And yeah, I just thought, yeah. how much of this, and I'm kind of spitballing here, but how much of this is down to starving the public sector of resources over the longer term, so much so that, that they can't get the basics right? So to me, you you really need an efficient appropriately funded public sector to provide the kind of support structure, call it social infrastructure or whatever, to allow the economy and allow markets to function and also to help deal with a crisis and especially to deal with a crisis that the private sector is going to be really not capable of dealing with. yeah, And this is a classic case of that, I think. The most obvious place where this has occurred, I think, is the United States, where you've had this debate about, you know, trying to restrict government and um, give tax cuts uh, and start and shrink the government down to a you know, much smaller size. And look, that's gone too far. I think the lesson of this crisis may end up being that that pendulum swing towards smaller and smaller and and, and indeed underfunded government has swung way too far and we need to actually have a properly funded, you know, safety mechanism um, for society and really only government can do that.
1: Yeah, and I guess I'll, um, while we're spitballing, I'll park it here because I want to get you back on uh, for another episode and we were planning to do, I think, three or four episodes back to back today but we've uh, had to dial in. Like, is this a time to have it the actual discussion about what does a universal basic income look like? You know, with, without all the fear and the socialists and the capitalists having a big fight. Let's just talk about facts and see if it would have helped during these tough times. So,
3: Look, I think um, it possibly would have helped, but in the absence of that universal basic income, you need to have, and to be honest, I've I followed that debate with great interest in recent years, and the, the cornerstone of the debate really has been that with technological progress, there's going to be a whole bunch of jobs that people do today, which simply won't exist, and that you may have a large percentage of the population that will be literally unemployable and you need a basic income to support them. I think that's pretty much a basic summary of the debate.
2: Yeah,
3: I don't think we're at that stage yet. I think we're some years away from that because I do think that, you know, we're, we're some years away from a situation where technology gets away eliminates all these people's jobs i don't know whether you've seen that movie um wally you know with the robot who comes back to earth and collects samples right? john probably
1: has he's got about 15 kids he's got, so. yeah, exactly but
3: you know where he, know. the robot gets sent back to Earth to see whether you can find traces of life because yeah. we poison the whole planet and the humans are basically on a giant space cruise ship and they're all fat and round and rolling around and being fed by robots um, because they, no one does anything robots do everything right and so it's almost Sounds you know, pretty it's a depressing movie um, <laughs> but it's almost art imitating life you know the, the, it was Wally is almost the the end game for universal basic income right but I think we're, we're just not there and but putting that, that debate to one side I think this crisis has taught us that you know from time to time you need governments to be able to step up and if governments are going to do this You need to ensure that governments are appropriately funded and that we can't keep thinking that every time someone says tax reform, it must involve a tax cut because let's at least have the debate about what do you want the government to do and how are you going to pay for it Um, because... And that's a major shift in the the tone of the debate that we... It's a major shift in the conversation, I think, that's going to have to occur and whether this crisis is the trigger for that, I, I don't know, but I would hope so.
0: So so what we're hearing, Brian, from your mouth, I suppose, is the government or, or what the government does over the coming weeks will, will define how big and scary this thing is and, and how brave and courageous they are with their, their action. But let's look at the RBA for a moment and um, see that, OK, if the official cash rate is 0.25%, which is its mm. lowest in over 30
3: years... Lowest in living memory, absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: so... Can you explain to the listeners just how interest rates work and the role of the RBA in this but in general?
3: Oh, look, it's a really good question. And, look, in theory, um, and being an economist, I'm a bit of a fan of economic theory. I mean, you you reduce interest rates... Um, If you reduce overnight interest rates, um, that tends to flow into a whole range of other um, interest rates that households and businesses pay, either uh, when they borrow from banks or or when they borrow from money markets. Um, And so if you lower the rate of interest, you make borrowing more affordable, so you encourage people to borrow money and spend, but for those people who have existing debt – And to the extent that that debt has a variable interest rate attached to it, it means they're paying less interest. So, you're you're effectively putting money in their pockets that they can then use to either spend more or they can use it to pay down their debt faster. And even if they just use it to pay down their debt faster, at least it allows them to maintain a level of spending that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. So, that's all how it works in theory. Um, Now, in practice, let's talk about now. Okay, to me, the RBA have done pretty much all the orthodox things it can do. It's basically said that it doesn't want to go into negative territory with interest rates, and I agree with that. I don't think negative rates actually work. I think they solve more pro- they create more problems than they solve. I don't think the current level of interest rates is really an obstacle to people borrowing money. Um, rates are still at historic lows. So, uh, yes, what the Reserve Bank has done is, is helpful, but in a crisis like this, It's not really the main game. Monetary policy can can help at the margin, but it's really what the health authorities do and what um, fiscal policy, what government spending and tax decisions do that's going to make more of an impact Um, because the way I just described the way traditional monetary policy works, that's a little bit convoluted. And so, you know, the chain between the RBA doing something and people actually deciding you know what I'm actually going to borrow and spend more that can take a while mm. and we don't have a while we've got to get money out there now um, and i I'm, I'm pleased that the, the government seems to be responding with increasing levels of aggression that you know the first package they announced was was good but now they need to do more and i think you will see them do more um, and then but they need to do that really really soon look I don't want to sound too doom and gloom here. Look, Make no mistake, the short-term economic impact here is going to be bad. Undoubtedly, governments and the central bank, but particularly governments, can help cushion the blow. Um, but also, this will come to an end. And I think when, you, when I talk to Superfund members, when I talk to financial advisors and their clients, the main message that we've been giving out there is, look, this is a really savage crisis which has hit us, and it's hit us suddenly, and it's going to impo- and it's clearly hit markets very hard. But you know what? Every crisis, every market downturn, every recession, every you know, every crisis comes to an end. bar none. The only uncertainty is the depth and duration. It's it's like I've seen this movie before. The plot's different every time, but the ending's always the same. In other words, it does come to an end and life and the economy and business and markets go on. It could take some time, but, you know, this crisis will come to an end. We will actually get a resolution here. Um, and I think that's important to bear in mind. Yeah, and I, I think, point.
1: yeah, the, the good thing is when they say, look, there are we're on top of this now, there are now less active cases day on day. I mean, overnight... It could mean that I can buy my coffee tomorrow at two pm instead of like this morning at eleven am. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I guess the on the coal face, the practical level, when this ends, it will end suddenly, and we'll suddenly get back to our day to day life, which means mm. suddenly start going out and spending money.
0: Yeah, because when I think about this, like, <laughs> what would you rather have a, a seven hundred or eight hundred dollar cash injection from the government as a one off, or Save a hundred dollars a month over the next twelve months because of your interest rate reduction. Most people would take seven or eight hundred in their pocket, wouldn't they? They well, don't see the savings but as.
1: If a, you as don't a have a mortgage, it doesn't matter anyway.
3: Correct. Correct. Yeah. And don't forget, the people with a mortgage are roughly what a third of the market. Mm. Yeah. So you know, people who don't have a mortgage, you know, people who are renting, people on in, people on a pension. You know, these people don't, you know, don't really get the impact of what the Reserve Bank does, but they mm. could definitely get the impact and soon. Um, from government action. And that's really going to be more important this time around.
1: So, Brian, from what you're saying, I was going to ask you a question like, would we see interest rates at 0% in Australia? From maybe an optics point of view, the RBA would probably not do that. And that's why they're now... Floating this term, quantitative easing, or yeah. the street name of printing money, how does this work in practical terms?
3: Yeah, what it effectively does is two things, um, both in theory and in practice. If you, it's basically injecting a lot of liquidity into the financial system. So you you go into the uh, the money market. You buy um, short and medium-term government bonds or a range of other securities, but usually government bonds. In order to pay for them, uh, you're paying cash into the uh, financial system. And so you've got a whole bunch of banks and a whole bunch of institutions who um, have sold bonds to the government or, sorry, to the Reserve Bank. They're sitting on cash. What do banks typically do when they have excess cash? They look to put it to work. The mm. banks are ultimately in the lending business. And so the idea is that you, you take that cash and you lend it out. Another sort of more practical um, example of this, to the extent that you step in and you're buying bonds, uh, what you're effectively doing is you're helping to keep not just the overnight cash rate down, but you're basically telling the market, you know what, uh, I'm going to keep longer term interest rates down as well. So, the, not just the short-term cost of borrowing, but the long-term cost of borrowing is going to be lower, and it's going to be lower for a longer period of time. Uh, what that does is that it should encourage people who would typically borrow um, uh, for longer-term projects, for longer-term, um, uh, longer-term business lending, for example, they get a lower cost of capital. So, that should encourage them. Um, to maybe put more money to work. Or it'll encourage them to say, you know what, if I'm deciding whether to invest in a particular project or not, I used to think that I'd have to, re- i have to generate a return of X. Um, and X was based on uh, what the long-term interest rate is plus some kind of risk premium on top of that because I'm in business, I want a reward, right? But if I'm going to tell those businesses, you know what, that um, long-term interest rate that you base those decisions on, that's going to be lower for longer than you've experienced previously. So in other words, if you're deciding whether to invest in a project or not, if you can become confident that the Reserve Bank is going to lower your long-term cost of capital, you're going to be more likely to invest. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. So so just on that, and, and probably coronavirus aside for this answer, in your personal experience, what other measures do uh, central banks and governments have to do to to stimulate the economy.
3: The, the main thing right now, um, and the experience of the GFC is instructive. Um, I know uh, Rudd and Swan copped a lot of grief over over pink bats and school and school halls um, um, and things like that. But they did move fast and they didn't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And the cash handouts, you know, when Ken Henry, the Treasury Secretary, said to them, go early, go hard, go households, that's what they did. They put money into the hands of people who are most likely to spend it. Now, who right now is going to be more likely to spend an extra dollar you give them? It's those people literally living from paycheck to paycheck who are worried about how many shifts they're going to get this week, how many shifts they're going to get for the next month. You put more money into their hands, they'll spend it. It'll enla- enable them to meet their rent and their power bills and things like that. Um, that's going to more likely sort of help support things, I think. Um, so that's that, to me, is the key. And that's not the Reserve Bank. That is government.
1: Yeah. And on that, with the government spending, and I guess this is a question, uh, again, coronavirus to just one side, if this wasn't where we're at right now. Like, are governments now more concerned about the politics and uh, not having a, a, a deficit and having a surplus at the expense of heavily investing in infrastructure in this country for the future?
3: Look, I think right now, the last thing any sensible government um, needs to do is worry about a surplus or worry about how big a deficit you're going to run. Um, the stakes are just too high at this point. You need to step up and do stuff. Um, the Frankly, uh, there was a lot of political um, uh, political will to try and deliver a surplus, and certainly the government had had, you know, hung their hat on the idea that they defined a return to surplus as as a criteria, if you like, to be labelled a responsible economic manager. Um, that may have been true then, back then. I don't think it is, but some people might argue that. Now it is certainly not true. Aiming for a surplus now is utterly irresponsible, and they've been right to ditch that. Yeah. Um, they're actually they're doing exactly the right thing. I, but I I just do think they need to do a bit more and do it faster. My sense is that they will actually. Uh, um, I think you will see a lot more aggressive measures coming up.
1: Yeah. Now, I, it's probably a good time to have a bit of a joke about an economist. You know. You guys are really good at um, telling what's happened in the past uh, with modelling and oh, whatnot. Very,
3: oh, very funny, you know. Yeah, it's all always always your studies so are based po- on, aren't yeah. they, yeah. yeah, no, That's That's why so many podcasters become stand-up comedians. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: So funny. And I mean, given this time, like, you must just spring out of bed at the moment. It's like, oh, we're <laughs> living in a real-life case study. But um, I'll, I'll get off my stand-up soapbox. <laughs> but <laughs> what key factors do economists and even yourself look at that would signal the end of a pandemic? Because I know in another life, um, maybe 10 years ago when, and for those listening, I had previously dealt with Brian in a a professional sense in another world, uh, when you were managing portfolios, a pandemic was something that you would consider when managing risk of a a portfolio. But uh, what do you look at for the signals of the end of a pandemic?
3: Oh, look, um, right now, so much of the economic news that people like me would typically pour over is so ancient history that it's not relevant. Yes. A classic example, you know, earlier today, you know, the employment figures were released uh, in Australia for February. February is – and the employment numbers in Australia are generally pretty timely. So we're sort of mid-March and we've got February figures. That's not too bad but it is totally ancient history it showed that the economy generated 27000 jobs and that the unemployment rate fell back to 5.1% that's not it's not a bad set of numbers mm. They totally mean nothing irrelevant. right now. <laughs> yeah. They mean absolutely nothing. That, that was so now, that was taken
0: before this started, though, wasn't it? I, I read that. Well, yesterday. it was still.
3: It certainly was before we really woke up in Australia and said we've got a problem. Yeah. And so um, it, it is very much ancient history. But now I think it's things like and what um, investors and economists are tracking is things like infection rates, mm. um, and and the decisions of what. And not some, not even the decisions of central banks and treasuries, but the the decisions of of health departments and the medical authorities, and trying to get a trying get a um, trying to listen to people who are really expert in this field because they're going to know more about it than any economist or any financial analyst or whatever, Um, try to find people who are expert in the spread of infectious diseases and what you need to do to deal with it and what works and what doesn't. So um, the experts of the day are not the economists, they're the people who know how to deal with this challenge. Mm. And so in terms of data, it's things like infection rates and the speed of infection rates and how fast we can bring those rates to a level and then hopefully bring them down sharply. Um, That's really the challenge. Um, Now, the good news is uh, some countries have managed to do this, uh, but we need to see... I think we need to see signs of falling infection rates um, in in places like Spain and Italy initially, but also uh, now that the Americans have started to get serious about this, infection rates in the US are going to keep rising for a while, but they'll end up starting to roll over. I think when you see infection rates roll over in a range of countries... Um, especially as we get further into the Northern Hemisphere summer, which is not far away. um, That's when I think markets, uh, share markets in particular, will be able to say, okay, the economy is looking rubbish right now, but we knew that was going to happen. But looking ahead, we can see a light at the end of the tunnel because the health crisis is coming to an end. And so um, the business Businesses can go back to work, people can go back to work, and the economy can recover. So, and I think markets, um, just as markets fell before the economy did, I think markets start to stabilise and rise before the economy properly recovered. So, I think that's the way we're seeing it at the moment. But make no mistake, this is a very challenging time for investors to... Um, especially for those investors in sort of approaching retirement or in retirement. Mm. I mean, for, young, for younger investors, you know, people 25, 30, 35, and often they don't pay a lot of attention to their super. Um, but this is the kind of crisis which, um, you know, is going to happen, maybe not a major influenza crisis like this, but certainly the kind of crisis in terms of the degree of impact on markets this is going to happen a number of times between where they are now and when they retire. Yeah. And there's got to be and, – and if you're a young super fund member looking at how you should invest, you're looking at this very, very short-term fall in markets and saying, well, this is this going to last forever? No, it won't. And these sort of market corrections will happen multiple times between where you are now and when you retire, and it's going to cause grief at the time. But one of the messages we try and get across to younger members is – the long-term reward you get for putting up with this kind of volatility, for putting up with this kind of short-term stress is a higher long-term return. You get rewarded for risk. You get rewarded for putting up with the short-term um, crises and short-term downturns that share markets can give you.
0: Yeah, it's a really uh, and This good, is a
3: classic example of that.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point. And we talk about it all the time on the podcast about um, just – having that long-term view and and keeping firm with your long-term strategy Um, but yeah obviously we've seen the the dips and falls in the in the share market in the last few weeks Um, but what's happening in the space of property in your point of view what uh, do you see there's much of a dint there in the short term or is that going to be a little bit insulated?
3: Well, it's a really good point, and, and it depends on how you define property. If you think about the mums' the residential property market in Australia, a few things to note. You know, we have seen this sharp rebound in the last 12 months or so, you know, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, obviously, but we've also seen signs of recovery in the other capitals too. So, um, you know when when uh, the regulator relaxed their lending criteria, when the reserve bank moved rates lower, um, you did see quite a sharp return to uh, return of confidence to the residential property market, uh, both here and in, in, especially Sydney and Melbourne. I think that lasts for a while, especially given that rates have come down again. But I and but I do think that as the um, authorities continue to clamp down on on our everyday economic life, um, activity in a whole range of markets, including residential property market activity, is probably going to be constrained. So I think we, should go, we probably should expect to go through a period of a few months where you know, the overall volume of activity in property does slow down. Uh, and slow down quite significantly. Now, what that does to prices, I don't know because uh, while demand comes off, so does supply because people say, oh, look, you know, I'm not going to put my house on the market now because no one will come to look at it because of coronavirus. So I think you'll see a slowdown in activity, I don't think you see prices continuing over over the coming years. I don't think you continue to see prices rise at the rate they currently are. Um, I think you do see, I think you'll see more modest gains. And I think the gains will, over time, start to flow through into other parts of the economy. Oh, sorry, other parts of the country. But one caveat to that, though, I'm basing that view on the idea that the economic disruption from this, um, is going to be relatively short term, that we get this very short, very sharp downturn in activity. Infection rates get under control over the coming weeks to months and activity starts to recover. Now, if uh, I'm wrong on that, if this ends up being uh, a longer um, drag on things, uh, on the economy than, than we're currently thinking, um, then you could actually... And, in other words, if, if share markets uh, stay weaker for longer... Um, that could flow into other asset classes. That could mean that people look at the a whole range of assets and decide, look, um, I'm I'm overburdened with property assets. I'll start to sell, uh, I'll, and I'll put some downward, pr- and I'll end up putting downward pressure on prices. I don't think that's going to happen because I do think this crisis resolves itself sooner than that. But that's one particularly damaging scenario which could play out. As I said, don't think it's going to happen, but. Um, You know, let's be aware of the risk. Let's because one thing I do worry about as an investor and as an economist is that, you know, if I look at Australia, I mean, we love residential property investments. We're kind of obsessed with residential property investments as a nation. And we, you know, we all grew up with the adage that, you know, you can't go wrong with bricks and mortar. That is totally untrue. You can go horrible. wrong with any investment including bricks and mortar um and i think the last you know before markets recovered recently i'm kind of hoping that some people got the message a couple of years back that you know what you can go wrong by uh investing too much in property especially if you overpay for the property up front Mm, mm. sorry that was a very long-winded rant about property
1: no it's good no but um Yeah, that's uh, really good, that. Just a couple of questions left. If I can just go back to unemployment rates, what's considered full-time employment and what are some projections, even over the very short term, just this year?
3: I think the Reserve Bank would basically say that, you know, full employment or what we call the natural rate of unemployment has a four in front of it, not a five. Mm -hmm. Um, They think um, the... um, and, And realistically, it's one of these concepts that... You know you've got there when you get there. It's very hard to know you're And Once you've actually got to a certain level of unemployment where wages start to accelerate and where businesses start to scream that they really can't get people, you've probably arrived at your full employment rate, mm. okay? Mm. Um, we are some way away from that. I think we could easily drive our unemployment rate down to 4% comfortably, Uh, without seeing uh, a massive increase in wage or price inflation. So I think our natural rate is is considerably lower than where we are now, Um, which also means that, and this is one of the other issues, that coming into this crisis, you know, households were growing their spending at a very moderate pace. And the reason they were growing at only a moderate pace, it's because their incomes were only growing at a moderate pace. Yeah, we were generating jobs, but we weren't generating any kind of meaningful acceleration in wages. Um, And this is just going to put even more of a cap on wage increases. So, you know, coming out of this, when the, you know, when unemployment is going to rise quite significantly in the coming months, with very little doubt, which means wages are probably going to slow down even more. But when things start to recover, when people go back to work, um, we're going to be even further away from that natural rate of unemployment. Um, so, the, so, in other words, you know, the last thing we will need to worry about, um, and if I was at the Reserve Bank, and, I, and their actions would say that, that they agree with this too, the last thing we need to worry about at the moment is inflation being too high or wages growing at too fast a pace. We've had several years now where the opposite is true. We've had inflation being too low and wages growing at too slow a pace. And the problem in the short term is only going to get w- worse before it gets better. E-
1: e, the short term, like I haven't seen any um, of your colleagues in Australia uh, quoting double-digit unemployments in the short term.
3: No, I don't think so. And, and even during the GFC, we didn't do that. Yeah. We didn't get to that point. And I don't think we get there this time either. One of the things that does give me um, uh, some comfort here is that uh, – you know, don't make no mistake, there, there are going to be people feeling a lot of pain and there will be a lot more unemployment. But I think the experience of the GFC was instructive, um, was that a lot of employers, where they could, uh, kept people on, used annual leave, used long service, cut back people's hours, moved people to part-time, just to try and keep good staff. Mm. Um, and that did mean that when you looked at the stats back during the GFC, The data on things like hours worked fell really sharply, but the number of people employed didn't fall quite as far. And consequently, the unemployment rate didn't rise to double digit. Uh, And I'm pretty confident the same thing will happen here, that you won't see anything like the kind of rise in unemployment uh, that perhaps we would have seen uh, during the sort of late 80s, early early 90s, for example.
1: Yeah. Now, if I can get you to just lean over to your left, open the top drawer, Brian, and uh, grab that crystal ball that you got sitting there, um, and I'll give you a couple of seconds to get that out onto the desk. Um if, you know, no, is, yeah. c- continuing
0: yeah. his theme on humour yeah. today, Brian. Yeah, sorry. Yeah.
1: I'll be here all week, everybody. Um, <laughs> so
3: awesome. the dust on those jokes must be making you sneeze. Oh,
1: they're t- really old. Totally, totally, touche. Now, you know, I, I get the messages and people write in on our Facebook group. Hey, I've got ten grand. When do I invest? So, when is the best time to buy shares?
3: Oh, that's a really good question and one that's kind of unknowable. Mm. If you are, if you are looking. Um, to buy shares today and sell them in a month uh, or sell them in a week and make a quick buck, yeah. um, don't bother because, frankly, you you are punting. You are not investing, okay? And if you want to punt, go to Randwick. They serve drinks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, you're not allowed <laughs> in.
0: You're not allowed <laughs> you in. Can't
3: go in. You can't go in anyway. Yeah. Um, but literally, um, that is not investing. Mm-hmm. So if you are genuinely an investor, and to me um, – for an, a genuine investor, your time horizon is more like three to five to seven to ten years. Mm. Um, now is clearly a better time to be buying shares than a month ago. Mm. We literally share markets are thirty percent cheaper today than they were a month ago. Mm. It's often said. I'm not sure there was. Uh, it's one of the guys I work with here uses the line. I think it's a Warren Buffett line that the price is what you pay, but value is what you get. Mm. right Um, well today let's look at the share market share markets are down 30 percent from where they were a month ago ask yourself this has the value of all the businesses listed on that stock exchange has the true underlying value of those businesses the entire value of their future long-term cash flows over many many years has the value of those businesses really fallen by 30 percent in other words the price is actually giving you a true signal of their true indication of their value, I think the answer to that's no. Mm. Uh, And so consequently, now is not a bad time to be thinking about putting money to work, provided you are comfortable with the risks that you are taking and you have a long enough time horizon and that you understand that if you're going to do this, if you pick the very bottom of the market, don't let that, don't. Walk away and say, I'm the world's greatest investor. No, you're not. You're just very, very lucky.
1: Yeah. And if like Uncle Glenn can jump in and talk to his children out there, like if you are considering investing, if you do have a casual job at the moment in hospitality, don't bloody bother investing. You need, you'll need to withdraw the money next Thursday anyway. So exactly.
3: (laughs) You need a buffer. And I think the other lesson, uh, as we mentioned early on in the podcast, you know, if one of the enduring lessons, is that people need to be a bit more aware of their long-term financial health, uh, and uh, and if that means um, accumulating more of a buffer, more of a savings buffer to mm. to uh, allow for these short-term disruptions in your working life. While that, you know, if people come out of this crisis with that mindset, it means that they won't perhaps be growing their spending at as fast a rate, but it'll be better for the longer-term health of Australian households in a financial sense.
0: Yeah, great point. It sounds like you've been listening to our podcast quite often, Brian, with that sort of recommendation. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I've, um, I think Buffett himself also said, don't try to catch a falling knife. Um, so same sort of theory around speculating and trying to play the grand final without doing the pre-season. If you haven't got your buffers in life and you haven't yeah. um, done the research, then don't just go and do it
3: yeah I think that's right, but and you know, it's all about um, one rule of thumb I always use. Um, it's the sleep at night test. you know if you're putting money to work, if you're investing, uh, and I don't care whether it's your super, your mortgage or your small business or whatever, if you're doing something with money, anything at all, and if that's cause if that thing is causing you to lose more than about three minutes of sleep at night, that is your body telling you something. Your body is telling you you're taking too much risk. Mm. Uh, because, frankly, there's no point in going out there and trying to, you know, swing for the rafters in a financial sense if you can't, you know, eat or sleep with the worry of it. Because uh, sleeping at night can never be overrated.
0: Is that with or without sleeping tablets?
3: <laughs> without, preferably.
1: Do <laughs> yeah. a Michael Jackson and get old Uncle Dr. Conrad to come around each night. Hey, uh, oh, Brian. Oh,
3: jeez, you're harsh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We're... Um, We're not letting uh, the Sunsuper compliance team listen to this episode um, before we publish it. So just note that before I read the next question, there's two questions left. It wouldn't be a a Brian Parker session without asking about Trump and the USA. Uh, So Trump, USA, is the USA the real country to watch with their response to this virus and economic stimuli or is it every country for themselves at the moment?
3: I think everyone is actually, the the thing which I take some comfort from at the moment is that every country of note is stepping up and is actually getting serious about this, not just in terms of their health policy response. Um, Every country is ramping that up, some better than others, some more timely than others. But in an economic sense, everyone's central banks uh, everyone's treasuries uh, um, is are stepping up and actually providing the kind of support the economy does need. Does it mean they need to do more? Yes, it does mean they need to do more. But even in the US where they've been really slow to respond and some of Trump's public comments when this first happened have been were just utterly stupid um, and totally counterproductive. Um, Now, finally, he's starting to sound vaguely more sensible, but mind you, he still turns up at a press conference, says vaguely sensible things, and everyone says, oh, great, he's actually turning into a president. Then he hits Twitter again, and situation normal.
1: My my favorite Trump uh, comment, he was up there with his bloody baseball cap at the White House (laughs) press conference. He's like, you know, coronavirus has no chance against America. No chance.
3: <laughs> it's oh, like it's a human being. Oh, mate, it's just. Yeah, we don't have a president in the United States. We have a man baby. Yeah. And uh, look, I'm just very, very pleased that the true leader of the free world actually does understand what's going on, um, Angela Merkel. And uh, the longer she can hang around, the better. Because yeah. uh, the world desperately needs political grown ups. Um, and uh, um, they have um, until recently been in short supply, but hopefully the grown-ups that are out there are stepping up and doing sensible things.
1: Great. Now, last question, and yep. it, you'll have to excuse me, John. This is a completely selfish question. Um, That's okay. <laughs> I've, I got my super with Sunsuper, so I want to know <laughs> what is Sunsuper doing for their members' portfolios at this time.
3: And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well.
1: Well, they do, Yeah.
3: Mm. Well, there you go. I mean, what we're doing is, firstly, are we selling and panicking? No, we're not. Um, Are we still finding investment opportunities that we're able to pick up uh, in this environment? Yes, we are. Um, Have we taken advantage of uh, falling equity prices uh, to just very cautiously, in a very risk-controlled way, add a little bit to our exposure? Yes, we are, at least in those portfolios. Like our balanced and growth portfolio that have a longer term time horizon, because you know we recognise that you know when people invest with us, um, our our members are typically very young. The average age of a Sun Super member is more like 36, 37. and the median age is actually younger. It's more like mid to late twenties, um, and, and clearly in a financial sense they're just starting out, but. We do recognise we we run money for relatively young members, so we have to take a longer-term view, and that's what we do. Um, So we are still maintaining a very substantial allocation to unlisted assets, which helps smooth the ride for our members along the way, but we are also looking for opportunities to add value, to add to the future performance of the fund. But make no mistake, you know, we are not immune to what's going on, um, but our portfolios have clearly suffered given what's happened to share markets. But what we are trying to do is make sure that we're well positioned um, and able to capture the inevitable recovery in markets. And yeah. that's, I think, what we're really focused on. That also, and making sure that we continue to remain liquid and and run, our, run the business of the fund properly and look after members' best interest, make sure we strike fair daily unit prices, make sure we can pay pensions, make sure we can do switches for members who want them. That's really what we're very much focused
1: on. Yeah, and I guess I, I probably will get you back because I want to um, do a bit more deep dive into fund uh, management of super portfolios, but a lot of people don't realise when you pick up your product disclosure statement for your investment fund or super fund, if the PDS says we will always have an allocation of 25 to 35% Australian equities, like you guys have to manage money to that mandate because that's what you've agreed to do.
3: Well, exactly. What we do is we tell people, look, um, we, run a, we run a range of diversified options that suit a range of members, a range of different appetites for risk, a range of different um, stages of life. So, for example, a younger member would generally be invested in a higher risk or more aggressive portfolio than someone who is approaching or in retirement. And that's perfectly sensible. So we manage according to what is on, you know, we we deliver what is what is on the label, mm. if that makes sense. Yes, totally. So if we tell people we are going to run a growth fund which is going to be invested for the longer term and is going to be designed to deliver long-term real returns, um, the way we do that is to make sure that we are invested enough in relatively higher risk assets so that we do deliver those higher long-term returns. But the quid pro quo, the, the, the flip side of that is, In order to get those higher long term returns, you need to be able to accept that markets will do what they've done in the last few weeks and they will do that on a fairly regular basis. The the reward you get for accepting those short term risks is higher long term returns. But we don't ask, but we think our retirees and our near retirees shouldn't be taking that sort of risk. And so, for example, our retirement and conservative options have a much, much lower allocation um, to shares and other growth assets because, you know, that's more prudent. You shouldn't be overly exposed to share markets as a general rule as you're approaching retirement.
1: Totally. Now, I'll um, I'll just finish. I, I put on Instagram yesterday, Brian, on My Millennial Money, that the World Health Organization have released a new guideline, a four-point guideline to the coronavirus. Uh, the first one is wash your mitts. The second one uh, mitts off other people. The third yep. one mitts off your face. And the fourth one mitts off your super. So... Keep you knit. Mitt- <laughs> <laughs> so don't bloody touch a super right now. Let it do its C- thing. Continuing the theme of
3: comedy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm here all week, I think John. That's true.
3: Pro- provided you, you know, provided you understand investing with your eyes open is crucial. Understand what sort of risk you're willing to take and what sort of risk you need to take and what you want to do and and where you are in life and and what your long term financial goals are. If you've got an investment strategy that's built with all of that in mind then you can keep your mitts off your super.
1: And particularly at the moment, if you're in a growth or a high growth fund, don't move it to a conservative fund at the moment because you are guaranteeing to lock in those losses for amen.
3: That's right. Um, you just won't experience anything like the kind of recovery um, that uh, staying the course is, uh, tends to deliver. And even during the GFC, that was the case. Even people who were in relatively – even people in the balanced option, which has 70% in growth assets, even if you just retired um, prior to the GFC, would you think, gee, that's a terrible time for that to happen? And yes, it was, but the people who moved to cash at close to the bottom of the market, they are worse off today than people who stayed the course.
0: So, Brian, just you – know, I'm just listening to your um – um. I suppose commentary around this will happen consistently over the next 30 or 40 years as an investor, you just got to weather the storm. If we look at, right, we're in 2020, the last one was, as you said, GFC and then Excuse my ignorance, but before that, 87, is that right?
3: No, I mean, um, if you think about it, com. let's start with 87.com. Oh, yeah,
0: okay, dot, dot so, yeah, do you? Th- early
3: 90s recession, you had the bond market crash of 94, you had the Asian financial crisis in 97, that became the emerging market crisis in 98, dot com boom and bust 99 and 2000, you had September 11, you had uh, Enron, that caused a lot of disruption at the time. Then you had really the GFC. Um, so this is not our first rodeo. This is this no. happens. This happens from time to time. But I um, suppose
0: for the listeners, it may be their first rodeo. So correct. when you look at the economic cycle, if you want to call it that, uh, are we are we saying this is a um, a mid cycle slowdown? Is that what you would call it?
3: No. Um, th- make no mistake. This is not a slowdown. This will be a recession. Yeah, but it'll be a short, sharp one. Um, and I think that's what the markets are telling. The fact that markets fell so sharply uh, just really shows you just how quickly the outlook has changed because this virus spreads so quickly uh, and has caused this massive reevaluation of the outlook because before this hit, we were coming into 2020 with the world economy actually starting to look better. But in the short term, that's not going to be the case.
1: So we didn't even get to the magical R word this episode uh, and it's probably, you know, yes, I think you said it, if we do hit recession, it might be just for a couple of quarters and very short term based on the data that you've seen.
3: Yeah, look, I think given the nature of these things, you literally, um, uh, with the virus to contain the spread, you take very, very drastic action to restrict people's activity and and that causes very sharp, but relatively short-term disruption. You bring things under control, and then things start to improve. So it's not something that uh, is a multi-year phenomenon. It's something that we should be seeing better and brighter economic news um, as we get into the second half of the year, um, because you know this thing is is going to be brought under control because the authorities are now starting to take the kind of steps that actually. That they need to do, mm. but it just means that in the short term there is going to be a severe economic cost.
1: Yeah, well, Brian, thank you so much for speaking to us and for our listeners today. Yeah, been great. And we might organise to do another catch up, um, maybe in a couple of weeks. Maybe we can do just some short, little fifteen minute catch ups if the powers at be. That Sunsuper will allow. I'd <laughs>
3: oh, be more than happy to, as long as they But mind you, short and sharp. I'm not sure you guys do short and sharp. That's are, we, own, are we talking that's about
1: the own, podcast is it, or?
3: Is it, yeah, I am actually. Oh sweet. I thought 15 minutes is just your opening gags.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah,
0: <laughs> reused ones.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brian, thank and Sun Super.
0: All the best. Appreciate it.
2: If you're after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. But if you do want a financial advisor or mortgage broker to talk with about your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'll put you in touch with one of our trusted professionals. If you're looking for a super fund that puts its members' interests above all else, choose a super performer, Sun Super. With low fees, strong investment returns and great member services, Sunsuper is Super Ratings 2020 Fund of the Year and has also been awarded by Money Magazine, CanStar and Finder. Find out more about Sunsuper at sunsuper.com.au forward slash choose. You can join Sunsuper online in under five minutes. Many people do not realise that slavery still exists in the world today. That's why My Millennial Money supports A21. We want to highlight A21 as they work to abolish slavery and human trafficking all across the world. If you want to support A21, visit a21.org.au for more information. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a high chance you have disposable income. Glenn has a mandate to get everyone giving, saving and spending in that order. Now, we want to encourage you to be generous with your money, but choosing an effective charity can be difficult. An amazing resource you can use is thelifeyoucansave.org.au. You can donate to them and they'll distribute your donation to a variety of life-saving and life-changing charities around the world with a focus on eliminating extreme poverty. For more information, visit thelifeyoucansave.org.au Thanks to Jess Knauss, Executive Producer, Laura from La La Social Club, and me, Asha. Uh, anyway, make sure you stay connected via our Instagram, our free Facebook group, or if you want to turn it up a notch and be on the inside of the show, become a member of M3 Private. For further information about what's going on, check out the links in the show notes. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told